March 1st, and we had the kind of weather that pulled everybody out of their house yesterday. I couldn't believe how many people were walking in our neighborhood. It was like a parade. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Chris Ranowski. Laura Johnston is off skiing for the day. Something maybe not wanted to do yesterday when it was up at 60 degrees. <laughs> it's a little cooler today. You guys have a good weekend. Great. I did. It was a I was one of those weekend. people walking in the neighborhood. I was stunned. I haven't seen that many people walking in the neighborhood, probably ever. It was like everybody was dying to get outside. And I, what time did the rain stop? Because I wasn't here until later in the afternoon. Was it like 2, 2.30? Midday, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it was still pretty wet. Okay, let's begin. What is Senate candidate Josh Mandel thinking? Attacking fellow Republican Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, with whom he could share a ballot in November 2022. And what did he say about DeWine at a conservative gathering? Jane Cahoon, I'm a little bit surprised that Josh is going after DeWine so hard. Yes, somebody's already dubbed him a Trumpy McTrumpster or something like that, but... He made his big appearance at CPAC on this national stage before an audience of ultra conservative Trump supporters. And as we've said before, he's eager to promote himself as Trump's number one ally. And so he decided to throw some red meat to the people in the audience who believe that coronavirus restrictions are an assault on their personal freedom, you know, rather than a means to save lives. So and by the way, the conference is usually in the D.C. area, but was in Florida because they wanted to avoid all those coronavirus restrictions. But anyway, apparently Josh Mandel's new favorite word is squishy because that's how he described people like DeWine who are, are not conservative enough for him. He said this authoritarian state, deep state, if you will, is not just led by radical liberal governors like Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo from California and New York but even squishy Republican governors like our governor, Mike DeWine. And this line of attack, you know, also gave him the opportunity to take aim at Dr. Amy Acton, who we know is rumored to be, well, more than rumored, she is considering running for the U.S. Senate on the Democratic side, and she's DeWine's former health director who guided Ohio through the early stages of the pandemic. And uh, he, you know, I'm going to say this because I think people should hear it, but I think it's offensive. He called her DeWine's COVID queen, you know, criticized her over these restrictions, too, that he said were, you know, hard on small businesses. And he also called DeWine a rhino, which is, as we know, a derogatory uh, acronym that stands for Republican in name only. And uh, as you said, it was an interesting strategy. Um, Think about that. Think about that. Mike DeWine. Republican in name only. I mean, I, I just don't get that. This guy, Mike DeWine, is pretty as conservative as they come. And to, and for Josh to be basically saying he's not Trumpy enough, which is what his message was, I, I just, it'll be an interesting year. I, I don't think Josh is going to be on the ticket as a Republican candidate. But but if he were with DeWine at the top, I mean, how do, how do you do that? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I would not discount how effective this will be. I, I, I you know, maybe I'm the, the naysayer here, but this has worked. And, and I guess I, what's so disheartening about it is that the Republicans rule this state. This is a, I mean, we are long away from being a, the purple state that we were years ago, you know, where it was like, well, this Ohio could go either way and it's a battleground and it's this, this is, 
this is what happens when one party controls everything. And, and when you're a party is, is one that is built on eternal grievance, eventually when you control everything, you have to basically attack the people that you, you agree with and, and that you are ideologically aligned with. Because, I mean, there, look, there's no serious policy discussion taking place at CPAC. It's all attack, 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 attack. And when, you, when your state is run by your political party, you're going to attack yourself. So when Josh Mandel's speech is followed by a Ted Cruz speech where he makes a really terrible, tasteless joke that should get him run out of Texas, but then he says, then he has the gall to look into the camera and claim that there's no, there's no civil war among the Republicans. It's like you had a guy on stage calling the Republican governor of a state an anti-abortion, anti-tax Republican governor of Ohio, a rhino. And there is nothing rhino about Mike DeWine. He is Republican through and through. And, and, and so I, I just, I can't see how you can make this acknowledgement that there, there's no civil war going on among Republicans. I mean, it's happening right before our eyes and, and, you know, the, the days of being told that not to, that I can't believe my own eyes are kind of over that died with Trump. You know, I, I, I was saying before the, the podcast began, I have this barometer of, of how zany the, the far right is getting. I mean, it, we, we, when I write a, a column that I, if things are in full fire, I get responses that basically said, you're a bunch of leftists. It's just, it's weird that, you know, all your reporters write from the left and it's like, we cover local news. There's not really any right or left here. And, but, but that had gone away for like six weeks. I hadn't heard anything from anybody. And then I wrote a simple short column this weekend about the experience level of our staff to, to kind of debunk the idea that we have a bunch of neophyte reporters. So it was just a straight, this is how much experience everybody has. Oh man, I got hit nonstop by, well, they might have experience, but they all are leftists and they're, it just, it was, it's bizarre. And I thought, okay, this must be CPAC. This must be Fox News is going off the deep end with its fictional coverage of pretending to be news coverage. And it's fired up that Trump base again to come flying at us. So the Josh Mandel speech, it's playing to the base. The Ted Cruz speech, it plays to the base. Trump's speech, it plays to that base. I don't know how big the base is, but they're all on fire again. The stolen election and all the nonsense, Trump in 2024. And Mandel is planning to hitch his political future to but, that. But but here we are talking about it again. And again, it, it's it's one of those things where... Well, how do you not? Oh, Chris. I, mean, I, I, do I, don't, I don't know. I mean, as journalists, do we allow them to dictate the conversation? And And at some point... I think it has to circle back to policy and what's best for people. You know, at the end of the day, the sideshow is is only as big as 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 we allow it to be sometimes, I guess. Wow. I mean, you're playing right into the hands of the people that say we're a bunch of leftists. How do you say you don't cover CPAC? I mean, I'm not saying you don't cover it. I'm saying I'm saying that there's a way to cover it that doesn't. Like it's not our it's not our job to give somebody our platform and say do what you want with it. It it is to provide context and and analysis, really. And Which is what we're doing here, right? But 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 at the same time, I think for I think what will happen with candidates like this, who I I, I think at some point it does have to circle back to what do you do for the state, and I, I think that still matters to some degree. I, and I don't and I don't think the the culture war thing will only take you so far. And, well, and right now it's, it's just, 
nothing but culture war and nothing but perpetual grievance. It, you look at his history. That's all he's ever done. He's never talked about issues and helping people. It's always the culture war. That's what he specialized in. Look, he's unlikable. I mean, we, you hear from people all the time. I don't like him. Republicans who might have backed him before don't want him as their candidate. I think he's got a very hard road because he's running against in Jane Timken, somebody who's also Trumpy, who also is identifying with Trump and doesn't have all of Josh Mandel's voluminous at this point negatives. Well, I'm not surprised he got on the stage and he said the things he did. I'm a little bit surprised he's attacking somebody he wants to share a ticket with who we haven't seen recent polling, but who in polling has been very popular with the people of Ohio on both sides of the aisle. Anyway, let's move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. With all the money that the federal government doled out to airports during the pandemic, why are passenger ticket prices looking to go up a good bit because of the pandemic? Chris Janowski, we took a look at this because we learned last week that the landing fees at the airport are going way up, and that'll mean higher ticket prices for anybody who flies. Why? Well, the cost of airline operating at the, at the airport skyrocketed last year because of the huge drop in passenger numbers and the facility's high debt. The, the airport lost revenue in parking, food and beverage and retail and other non-aeronautical areas that have to be made up somewhere. And the airlines are basically kind of bearing the brunt of that. And uh, the extra cost couldn't come at a worse time um, as the carriers are dealing with catastrophic financial issues on, of their own because of the pandemic. And the city is basically going to have to ask them for a huge sum of money to build a, a new terminal in, in a few years. Oh, uh, that's separate from this issue. The right, that's separate from this issue. But, but, but the airport's budget must be balanced without any city tax dollars, which means the revenues will come from both the airlines and landing and other fees and, and non-airline areas, including rent, parking, and other sources. So so really what ends up happening is you don't have city tax money to balance the budget at the airport. They charge the airlines more money, which means the airlines charge you more money. And, you know, the price always gets sort of passed on to the consumer in these things. And that is despite the fact that, you know, the airlines have received a great deal of, of federal basically bailout money. I, I, you know, I guess you would call it assistance, but it, it's, it received a lot of stimulus money as part of these big packages that Congress is passing. Well, and so did the city for the airport, right? Right, I mean, that, right. That's the problem is, is the city got a ton of money. And so you sit back and go, well, how much more do we have to give you to bail out the airport? Here's a question. What if you didn't do anything? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think you'd probably lose some airlines, maybe, maybe lose some services, maybe lose some routes. And, you know, eventually somebody would probably come in and fill that hole. But, you know, this is how we make ends meet now. You know, this is, this is what we've done with airlines my whole life. So, but, so. but it's not the airlines here. I mean, the city got $43 million to prop up its airport. It, it wasn't enough. They cut $16 million in spending, and they still had to charge the airlines more. And at some point, you go, is this, is this even worth it to, to keep it going? You know, do, do, would it... <laughs> It's like, that's a lot of money to be subsidizing one industry. And, and now anybody who flies out of Cleveland is going to have to pay, what is, what was the number? 30 bucks more per ticket or something. Well, what is the, but what's the alternative? Do you not want to have a major airport here in the city? (laughs) You know, it's, it's the same as 
Or do you, you know, go with capitalism? Do you say there's no demand for it now, so we won't do it for now, and we'll come back later when there's demand? Yeah, but you know, it it then you know airlines will go under, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a hairy problem. You know, there's we talk we talk about this up. in transit all the time, though. You know that that there's a there's an over overarching good to having this stuff, and it, and if it goes away, it might not come back. There's an overarching good to having grocery stores in every Cleveland neighborhood. There's an overarching good to mm-hmm. having the media survive. But nobody's bailing them out. Nobody's putting grocery stores in city neighborhoods with a subsidy, but we're spending billions to hold up the airline industry. I, it just, it's, it's a priority thing. No, I don't think anybody asked us where we thought we should spend that money. But I, I just, it's, this is a lot of money. And, and now the city is forced to deal with even more losses. And it's, uh, it's a challenge. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What can Ohio school students and their parents expect on standardized testing fronts in this coronavirus challenge school year? Jane Cahoon, this is very much in flux because of something the Biden administration did last week. Yeah. So Ohio lawmakers have this bill that that would have sought permission to exempt K-12 schools from administering standardized tests this spring. But Biden's administration has said they want these assessments to take place. They said that, you know, to be successful once schools have reopened, you know, we have to understand the impact that COVID has had on learning and identify what kinds of resources and supports that students need. So they feel it's vitally important and it's also important for parents and educators and the public to have access to this data. So that means the lawmakers kind of have to scramble around because in its current form, this this bill wouldn't work. So they're trying to rework it to to comply with what the federal government wants and, you know, maybe play around with the dates of the test or, you know, making them shorter or whatever. But they they kind of really don't know yet how they're going to solve this this problem. I guess currently the public gets to look at the school report cards around September 15th. But one of the lawmakers involved in this said that the substitute version of this bill, you know, might push that back to a later, later time. So the federal government is offering states permission to like not sanction or penalize districts based on poor grades from the tests or or low attendance. So that would be helpful. The teachers unions are, are concerned about this. You know, they think they still should seek a waiver. They, you know, now the kids are coming back to school. Teachers don't want to spend all of their time just teaching to tests, especially when they're dealing with, you know, all this learning loss that the kids have experienced. So they they want a more enriching environment for the kids. Yeah, but but you just talked about the learning loss. If you don't do the standardized testing, we're not going to know what the learning loss is, which is the Biden administration's point. Look. We won't penalize anybody for having low scores. We won't penalize people if attendance is low on testing days. But as a nation, we've got to figure out how much we've lost in education in the past year. And the way you do that is with tests. We talked about this, I think, toward the end of last year, about how silly it was that the legislature wanted to just get rid of the test because then you have no idea how bad this has been and what what you'll need to do to fix it. So this actually seems like, the right solution. Let's test them. Well, let's find I out think, what they don't know. And then let's let's not penalize anybody for that. Let's fix it. You know, teachers have talked about how they use these other like 
what they call formative assessments in classrooms. Those are like class level tests, and they think those provide more individualized information that they can act upon to to give kids what they need. And that lacks in the standardized test. That, you know, so that's just one point. But if you're the federal government and you're thinking you might have to put a lot of money into your education department to help catch all these kids up, particularly kids in urban areas who I think are going to have suffered more than people in the, the Tony suburbs, you need to know what to invest it in. What, what, you know, is it reading? Is it math? Is it everything? Is it, is it nutrition? And, and I mean, it's just there, there are questions that you can't answer piecemeal from from school districts, but I, I can, you, I can answer the question. Yes. To all of that. <laughs> because, yes. We need help with all of that. <laughs> yeah. I just, to get an idea of the degree of the help, the standardized testing seems like it's not a bad idea, especially if it won't affect graduation or any of the other things that they're talking about. We'll have to see how it ends up, but they've got to spin quickly because this is not what they wanted. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Do Cuyahoga County jail officials have any accountability for the apparent death of a schizophrenic inmate shortly after his middle-of-the-night release in November? Chris Ranaski, this is such a sad case, in part because they think they saw his body, but by the time they can get back to retrieve it, it was gone. Right. So this is this is a very sad, sad story that Adam Freese came across uh, in his reporting at the jail, and it was... It was one that I was kind of like when he told me about it, I was like, well, that can't be true. And, and it turns out every word of it was true. And it's so it's such a tragedy. This gentleman by the name of Jose Izari, a 40 year old man who was was taken to jail and and he, he lived with uh, schizophrenia and bipolar personality disorder. And he Spanish speaking man wrote a bunch of letters to his sister while he was in jail. and. And called her the day, the date right around the time that he was going to get released from jail. And then she waited all night for him to call and he never called. Well, what had happened was, is the jail kind of released him in the middle of the night. They let him go without a coat. He walked out of the jail with his cell phone with no ride anywhere. And they trapped him basically through GPS. They found out that he walked down to Whiskey Island and then he's pretty much disappeared. And, and, to answer your question that you asked initially, right now, the county doesn't really believe that it has much of a responsibility to investigate this because he didn't die at the jail. And and so I I suspect that there will be some examination of why he was released the way he was. And, and because he had, you know, some mental health issues, why there wasn't a greater effort to get somebody to pick him up. But, you know, he was claiming in his letters that he was getting the wrong medication that, you know, things in the jail were not good, which is something that we've written about historically. And and then he just disappeared and they presume he died. And and you're right, like when 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 they they found blood and and they claimed that he that there was something beneath the dock, but by the time they actually got down there to look at it, it his body was gone. I mean, there was nothing there. So so the possibility um, is it washed out into the lake, the water is freezing cold, so until the water warms up. Right, yeah, this happened in November. And, right, I mean, and, we often see bodies surface as the water warms up in the springtime, so that, that may confirm whether or not he's dead, but nobody's seen anything of him since that night, right? Yeah, I mean, he has effectively disappeared, and so he, 
he's presumed dead. I don't believe they've determined, you know, I don't know if there's been a final determination by the medical examiner or any official declaration of it, but it's, again, you, you have to feel for a family in this situation because it's, it's a, it's just horrible by every account. You know, this is somebody somebody who really did struggle with mental health problems that that probably should have gotten a little better care. The presence of the blood is is anybody thinking that maybe there was foul play, that maybe it wasn't a suicide, that it might have been a homicide? Or there, I, I I'd have to go back and look at the story because I read it last week and and edited it last week, so it's been a bit. But if I recall, there was a second there. There's some 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 indication that somebody else was with him at some point between him leaving the jail and him, him disappearing. But again, it, that that's as much as anybody knows at this point. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much money is in the federal stimulus bill passed by the house to help Ohio schools safely reopen? And what else is in it for Ohioans? Jen Cahoon, there's all sorts of money that's going to be floating around the country. What does it mean for Ohio? Well, it means $4.7 billion for Ohio schools to safely reopen. That would help districts repair ventilation systems, reduce their class sizes, uh, buy personal protective equipment, and hire support staff. And uh, as you said, there's lots of other stuff in this bill. I mean, this affects everyone around the country, but a lot of Ohioans are suffering financially, obviously, from the pandemic. And so there are these... uh, $1,400 stimulus payments to individuals. That was on top of other stimulus money that, that went out before. And then um, it's also got a provision that would finally do something about this these multi-employer pension plans that, that are on this shaky financial status. And, it, and that affects about 60,000 Ohioans who participated in these systems that covered pools of union workers who who worked for different companies in industries like trucking and mining and, and construction. So it would shore up those plans. It would prevent layoffs and service cuts in, in state and local governments. There's like $5.7 billion for the state of Ohio and $5.4 billion for, for local governments. It would extend the moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures and extend federal unemployment benefits by providing $400 supplemental weekly payments through August. And apparently about 450,000 Ohioans are at risk of losing those benefits when the, when the pandemic assistance expires. So yeah, there's a lot in there. And Republicans like <laughs> Senator Rob Portman think it's way too much and that it's not targeted enough to address the immediate crisis. But of course, um, Sherrod Brown really thinks all of it's needed. The Rich Exner did an interesting piece the, over the weekend that explained that with the stimulus, I hope I'm getting this right, with stimulus payments, people don't have to pay taxes on it, but right. on unemployment, they do have to pay taxes right. on it. Right. It's like so, a, it's kind of a double cut there. Yeah. It's an interesting, an interesting difference. Okay. And we'll have to see how that all plays out. That's a lot of money for the schools. I wonder yeah. how they're going yeah. to use it. And I am sure it'll be plastic shielding everywhere. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who is the new head of the Greater Cleveland Partnership, replacing Joe Roman, who has led that organization since it started in 2004? Chris Ranaski, we opened the podcast Friday to say who it was, but we didn't really talk about what his background is. So let's go through it. 
Right. Beju Shah will be the new president of the Greater Cleveland Partnership and the chief executive officer. Uh, Shaw is currently a senior fellow for innovation at the Cleveland Foundation and leader of the Cleveland Innovation Project, a five-member collaboration focused on boost, boosting smart manufacturing, health innovation, and water technology in order to reach economic and inclusion goals by 2030. The Innovation Project unveiled its goals last year with a lot of support from the Greater Cleveland Partnership. Shaw was the president of Bio Enterprise for about a decade. He grew up mainly in eastern Cuyahoga County and went to Mayfield High School before graduating from Yale University with a history degree and Harvard University with a law degree. The GCP serves as the regional, the region's chamber of commerce and was formed in 2004 uh, from the merger of Cleveland Tomorrow, the Greater Cleveland Growth Association, and several other organizations. So he is taking over for uh, Joe Roman, who is retiring and has led the partnership basically since its inception. Yeah, Beijing is very well regarded. Uh, he, when he unveiled that innovation project last year, they, they talked about how important equity and inclusion was. And, and we were all a little distressed because we said, okay, so everybody talks about that. That's everybody's mission. What are you going to do to meet it? And they're like, well, we're just starting, so we can't tell you that yet, but we're going to get there. And it's one of those that's like, okay, that's an enormous challenge. That is the big differentiator of Cleveland. If you could provide access to wealth opportunities to everybody, it would completely reform the region. That's their goal, but I don't think they had a whole lot of in the way of ideas. Interesting now that he's going to be at the helm of the GCP, which has a massive budget. They have right. a lot of money that maybe the, maybe he will come up with those ideas and get something done. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a very different time. Joe Roman has been running that thing for almost 20 years. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Donald Trump holding a grudge against Republican Ohio Congressman Anthony Gonzalez for voting to convict him in his impeachment? Jen Cahoon, I guess the answer is a big yes. <laughs> he most certainly is. Yeah. We had a couple of developments on that front since Friday. The first is that Cleveland native Max Miller, who's a former Trump aide, says he's going to challenge Gonzalez in the primary. And, um, you know, as you said, he it, Gonzalez was the only Ohio Republican in Congress and one of 10 total in the House to vote for Trump's impeachment for inciting the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And Max Miller said on Twitter that he had Trump's endorsement. Uh, he called him a wonderful person who did a fantastic job at the White House and he'll be fantastic congressman. And then on Sunday, Trump made his big speech at CPAC in Florida, and he took the time to pretty much individually bash all of his fellow Republicans who voted for his impeachment and called them grandstanders. And that included Gonzalez. He called him uh, another beauty. And he basically said, oh, they should get rid of them all, you know, him and Liz Cheney and all the ones who voted for uh, impeachment. Gonzalez didn't didn't comment on on Miller's announcement that he's he's going to be challenged. But, you know, he's very thoughtfully explained his reasons for his impeachment vote. And he told us earlier that he doesn't go about his business in, in fear of his next primary. He had said Trump helped organize and incite this mob that that attacked the Congress in an attempt to prevent them from completing their duties under the Constitution. And, you know, five people died, including a Capitol Police officer, and many more have been injured and are 
democracy's been shaken. Those are all things that, that Gonzalez said to explain his vote. So I don't think he's he's wavering on that. The, the, the thing that strikes me is I don't believe before this that Donald Trump had ever criticized Gonzalez for his politics or for his poor representation of Ohio. So really, all this is is the Messiah complex. Oh, you criticize me. You voted against me. You're no good. You got to go. You got to go. It is like mm-hmm. the most childish way of dealing with politics. And yet people buy into it. I mean, Gonzalez was not criticized for any of that. He, but he voted his conscience. And now he's the evil enemy of the Republican Party and the Ohio people in Trump's mind and Josh Mandel's mind. And what, where does that come from? I mean, how can people not see through that? Oh, you voted against me? You're evil. You're bad. You got to go. Didn't you live through the last four years? <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, can I ask? I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but did, did Gonzalez receive any support from Trump in his initial run for that office? Oh, boy. I just I don't remember because I think the first time he ran was when Trump was running, right? No, no. He's just entering his second term. He ran in yeah. 2018. 2018 and then 2020. Sorry. Yeah. So the answer is I, I don't remember. Okay. I, I would just assume that he would, he would think that there is, that he has some chance of, of recapturing this in, in leaning into criticizing Trump and, and the Capitol insurrection. So, I mean, he's not known as like a big Trump critic or anything. He's, he's more oh, known for no, being that was, that bipartisan was so and kind of common sense and, and somebody who's, actually managing to get some things done. Hey, look, he's in a pretty, you know, there are districts in the state that are like overwhelmingly uh, Republican, but that's a district that includes Rocky River and some places where I think rational voters will look at this and say, well, wait a minute. I, I, it just, it's so, it's such a obvious thing. Oh, you voted against me? So you're bad. You, you're, you're bad for the people of Ohio. Your politics are bad. And it's one vote. It, it, it's a, it's right. all or nothing. You're, there's no middle ground. There's no gray. It's all one or the other binary. Either you're with me or against me. And that's what dictators do. That's what despots do. And yet all those people at CPAC cheering them on. Did you see they actually had the gold idol? It's like right out of the Bible. Right? <laughs> they had a gold idol of Donald Trump and nobody understood the meaning of that. This is it's just. I just it looked like he was opening a Bob's Big Boy franchise somewhere. (laughs) Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, we'll leave it there. Good Monday discussion. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We think Laura Johnston will be back with us tomorrow.